One of my favorite smells is wood smoke, and specifically eucalyptus wood burning. While I'm sitting around a fire in the Australian bush, it always, for me, conjures awe. Because I've just read Dasha Keltner's new book on awe, I can actually give you a definition of what that means. The feeling of being present to something vast that transcends your current understanding of the world. But starting a fire is a delicate thing, a fragile moment. You need to collect twigs and small bits of wood, maybe scrunch up some paper, spark the flame, that first touch of heat and light, and then hold it out of the wind, apply it, hope it catches. And if it does, you nourish it. You feed it wood, you blow on it to feed it oxygen. It builds, it strengthens, it finds its form. And then at a certain point, it becomes robust. And for me, in that moment, it becomes that invitation to awe. And of course, when I say building a fire, I'm speaking literally. And I'm also speaking metaphorically. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book. Now, when I say brilliant people, Ozan Barrel is literally a rocket scientist. But that's just been one of his careers so far. And more on that on a moment. His latest book, Awaken Your Genius, has just been released, hence my Building the Fire introduction. He's also my latest podcast, whose roots are in Turkey. You might remember my conversation with Aisha Bursell, the wonderful designer, how to design the long life you love. I'm always curious because I am one as well. What's remembered and missed by immigrants? Turkish people are so beautiful and so hospitable, so warm, and so community-oriented. And that was one of the pieces that I really missed about Turkey. The absence of community was really apparent in the United States in so many ways. Like people lived in these little boxes and disconnected from their neighbors and disconnected from their community. Ozan's been drawn to search for community wherever he went, and he has a unique way of naming and framing what kind of community he wants to be immersed in. Not with like-minded people, but with like-hearted people. So not with people who think the same way that I do, who share my thoughts, but who have my values of you know transparency and generosity and kindness and open-mindedness. Over the years, Ozan's been searching for that community in a range of different places and professions. At 17, arriving in the States, Ozan had two suitcases and the determination to find a starting point to be a rocket scientist. I ended up majoring in astrophysics in college and served on the operations team for the Mars Exploration Rovers Project, which sent two rovers to Mars, speared an opportunity back in 2003. And then I did a pivot, and I've done a, a bunch of these pivots in my life, and I uh, lost interest in physics, and I became more interested in the physics of society, how human beings operate and how they think, and ended up going to law school. Practicing law wasn't for Ozan. I understand that. Same for me. So unlike me, he became a professor. And yet, much like his other endeavors so far, professing law wasn't a great fit. Something important was missing. He wasn't showing up entirely as himself. But for this, Ozan had a perfect example to look back on during his time in the Mars rover community. One of my professors 
at Cornell. His name is Steve Squires. Um, he's an astronomy professor, and he's the professor that was the principal investigator for this Mars mission that I ended up working on. And so I worked really closely with him. And he defied all sorts of stereotypes. Like, <laughs> you know, he was this larger than life character. And even yeah. though he's in this really complicated technical field of astronomy, he'd, you know, wear cowboy boots. And like you could hear when he was around because you would hear the cowboy <laughs> boots first coming down the hallway before he yeah. actually yeah. showed up. And he was so friendly and so open and so receptive to feedback from anybody. I mean, I started yeah. working in, on the mission when I was a freshman in college and like he was this really famous person who had just been put in charge of this incredibly important mission to Mars, but he was open to feedback from anyone. Mm. So I could ask him questions and he would lean in and listen um, and engage with me versus saying like, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, and, and I remember, you know, when I first started working for him, he had gotten some award. I don't remember what it was for. He, so he has this, um, he has this award, um, and he, it's, his name is imprinted on it and he scratched out his name and gave it to the two people who had helped him on mm. the mission and presented the award to them saying, this is really a testament to your genius and, and your generosity in working for the mission. Like they were the, the, the people behind the person. And right. Steve thought that they were more deserving of the award. And that really stuck with me too, in terms of being so humble that you're not going to keep this important thing for yourself, but you're also going to pass it on and, and recognize the generosity, the contributions of other people who, who helped you. And when was the moment you first claimed your genius? Not just when you were smart, because you were born smart, but you stepped into your genius in this more fulsome definition that you're working with now. Yeah. Uh, a moment dropped, jumped to mind in my head. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit of a backstory to, to make sense of that moment. Um, so one of the things, and I didn't mention this in response to your question, Michael, of what left its imprint on me from, from growing up in Turkey. I mentioned the, you know, the importance of community, but one of the things that came with the importance of community, especially in the education system, was an emphasis on conformity. So conformity mm -hmm. to community norms and standards. And so stripping away your individuality and really, right. really, you know, creating this conformist way of, of living, which was really at odds with the way that I, I functioned in life. And so like, I'll give you an example. When we were in primary school, each student was assigned a number, kind of like in Stranger Things, the Netflix show, uh, like yeah. 11. Uh, and our principal would call us by that number as opposed to our first name. So wow. it was like a way of branding someone, stripping away their individuality completely yeah. and instead of signing them, them a number. Um, and I had, you know, really long hair. I, I thought haircuts, I was channeling my inner Einstein. I thought haircuts were a giant <laughs> waste of time. And, you know, during an assembly, the principal noticed my longer than standard hairdo and he pulled me up on stage and he grabbed the hair clip from... Uh, one of the students in my class and he stuck the hair clip in my hair to like shame me publicly as a sort of this retribution for nonconformity yeah. and shame for Turks is worse than death. Yeah. I never skipped a haircut again. And so I turned into this like octopus of sorts. I would observe yeah. obsessively what was normal and then I would change my colors to, right. to shift and fit and blend into the background. I even changed my own favorite color. So when people would ask me, 
what's your favorite color? Instead of revealing the truth, which would have been purple. My favorite color say, too. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. I knew we that's liked awesome. each other. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, instead of telling them the truth, I would say blue. And I would mm. say blue because blue is what normal boys were supposed to like. And I right. really, really wanted to be normal. And so it's been this lifelong journey of getting back in touch with my purple. And so yeah. one of the moments to go back to your question of like when that started to come through and the moment that popped to mind was my now wife, Kathy and I, this, this must've been our like third or fourth date. So we just met each other and, uh, we're having dinner and she, she looked at me and she asked, what's your favorite color? And, <laughs> you know, I was about to blurt out blue, but I swallowed my words and returned to myself. And I said, purple, I mm. really love purple. And she looked at me and she smiled one of her gorgeous, infectious smiles. And she said, funny, ever since I was a kid, I thought I'd marry a boy whose favorite color is purple. Um, and i knew i finally <laughs> finally story. that's so fantastic yeah and so this lifelong journey of getting back in touch with my purple and just reminding myself and yeah. you know through my book the readers too that like your purple is really important your purple yeah. becomes the reason why people choose you over others why you know if you're a business top talent picks you over the competition why people yeah. talk about you why people buy from you um and so leaning into the purple is really the best way of awakening your genius. What does it take to be able to return to yourself? That's the phrase you use. You know, it's like I was going to say blue, but I returned to myself and I said purple. Mm -hmm. um, what permission do you need? What courage do you need? How do you, how do, you do that? Because it's... You know, you can see people who manage to do that and you admire them, but sometimes you can feel like, I don't know how to make that leap myself. I don't need to, to take that risk myself. What does it take? For sure. I'll mention two things. Um, the, the first is this realization that no one can compete with you at being you. Mm. You're the first and the last time that you'll ever happen. <laughs> and if your thinking is an extension of you, if what you're producing is a product of your own genius, of your own purple, then you'll be in a league of your own. Uh, yeah. But if you suppress your purple, if you suppress your genius, if you don't claim it, then that will be lost both to you and to the world. Uh, mm. So it all begins with that realization. We all have this unique purple, unique genius within us, and it will die with you if you don't claim it. Yeah. And number two... And I talk about a number of different strategies in the book, but one of the things that was really helpful for me is asking myself, what did I enjoy? I, I love this quote from um, Anthony Gaudi, the Catalan architect. He says, originality mm -hmm. consists of returning to the origin. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that has a number of different implications, but the way that I, I want to use it here is, what, did you, what is your origin story? What did you enjoy yeah. doing as a child? before schools cured you of curiosity, before people started to tell you what you should like, what you should be interested in, what you should be yeah. curious about. Because what made you weird or different as a kid can make you extraordinary as an adult. Um, yeah. So there's so much value in, tap in tapping into and reconnecting with those faint memories and then mm. using them as inspiration for what you do, do now. Um, 
For me, just to give an example from my life, if people are wondering, well, how do you reconnect with your origin story? One of the one of the first things I did after I learned to read and write was my grandfather had this typewriter, and I have a typewriter over there actually, just as nice. sort of a uh, yeah, as a way to uh, to harken back to that moment. And when I started to to read and write, one of the first things I did, not for school, just out of my own internal drive was to write stories. So I'd sit in front of this typewriter and I would write like screenplays and stories. And I started this magazine and my parents were the only readers, but I just sit there <laughs> and I just write because that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and then I lost touch with that part of me, the storyteller. Uh, and then as part of this journey of, you know, becoming an author um, and, and speaking on stage so frequently, I've learned to reconnect with that part of myself and 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 use stories as a way to convey ideas because we're storytelling creatures stories stick in a way that isolated bare principles don't and so i've i've learned to tap into those memories of what drove me uh, as a kid and and yeah. use them as inspiration for what i do now what's the price you've paid for being a genius cuz it's easy to talk up the the reward, <laughs> um, but you know, every choice you make has prizes and punishments. So I see the prizes. Yep. You don't want to die with the purple inside you, but what's the punishment? What's the cost of that? Yeah. The cost is <laughs> headaches, existential <laughs> crises, and really, really confused friends and family members <laughs> <laughs> is, is how I would sum that up. Um, and maybe I'll just focus on the really, really confused friends and family members. Uh, yeah. Part of part of my journey of awakening my genius, and there's I actually devote a whole section to this in the book called Metamorphosis and Transformation, is continuously reimagining what I'm doing, uh, yeah. my own identity and my own profession and my own career. And you know, when I decided to leave, for example, my tenured position in at the law school where I used to teach. My colleagues or you know, they were just madness. like, you're out of madness. <laughs> you're out of your mind, right? Yeah. You've got a guaranteed paycheck for life. Why would you do that? Um, and to them, it almost, to some of them at least, um, it became a judgment mm -hmm. on the choices that they had made. Uh, like the, the fact that I was leaving this. That's the, a key insight, net. I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, so I, um, so yeah, so it became this, this judgment, at least some of them took it as a judgment on them and they severed connections with me. Um, yeah. And so I lost some friends in the process, people who were really, really close to me. But the moment I stopped, the moment I abandoned that identity, mm. they disappeared from my life. Um, but as I write in the book, you know, the, the thing that I try to remind myself is often when you do awaken your genius and you do step into who you truly are, you become a beacon for people. You become mm -hmm. an example for other people to follow. And if people don't want to do that, so if they can't wrap their head around your transformation, I think that's their problem and not yours. Yeah. Uh, but again, we don't want to gloss over the reality of it. And the reality is that it can be really hard. Yeah. Um, Ozan, what book have you chosen to read for us? I chose Big Magic. Classic. Liz Gilbert's. Creative Living Beyond Fear by Elizabeth Gilbert. Yeah. I mean, I love 
You know, I, I saw her TED talk, I think it was, after Eat, Pray, Love. And she's like, I'm currently working on the deeply disappointing follow-up to Eat, Pray, Love, which is like, <laughs> nothing will be as big as that book. But I think with Big Magic, she might have written a book that was as big as Eat, Pray, Love. It's a yeah. different genre, but it's, um, when did the book come into your life? It came into my life shortly after, this must have been maybe seven years ago, uh, shortly after I started to think about branching outside of academia to write for non-academic audiences. And, yeah. um, and I'd, I had also seen that TED Talk you mentioned, Michael, and it had really struck me. And I think I looked up the book that she had mentioned in the TED Talk. And I think this is uh, after Eat, Pray, Love, because she normally writes fiction. It it's, yeah. a, it's a nonfiction book on creativity and, and creative living. Um, but it's, I think, so much more than that. It's really about living a creative life mm. in general. So even if you're not a writer or an artist or a musician, I think there's so much in this book about how to reimagine yourself and how to reimagine the status quo. It's one of my favorites on creativity of all time. That's fantastic. How did you decide what pages to read for us? I skimmed through the book <laughs> about a week ago and I was looking through my own highlights in the book yeah. and this section just jumped out at me and I thought, you know, this would be a really fun one to read and, and talk about. Um, so yeah, that's how I picked it. I love it. I'm just noticing the connection between the cover of your book, which is filled with color and the cover of her book, which is also filled with cover. So there's a real, there's a way that the two books dance together in a really nice way. Yeah, for sure. I actually hadn't made that connection before. Thank you for that. I love that. Yeah. Um, Ozan, reading Liz Gilbert's Big Magic, over to you. This is a short section called Originality versus Authenticity. Maybe you fear that you are not original enough. Maybe that's the problem. You're worried that your ideas are commonplace and pedestrian and therefore unworthy of creation. Aspiring writers will often tell me, I have an idea, but I'm afraid it's already been done. Well, yes, it probably has already been done. Most things have already been done, but they have not yet been done by you. By the time Shakespeare was finished with his run on life, he'd pretty much covered every storyline there is, but that hasn't stopped nearly five centuries of writers from exploring the same storylines all over again. And remember, many of those stories were already cliches long before even Shakespeare got his hands on them. When Picasso saw the ancient cave paintings at Lascaux, he reportedly said, we have learned nothing in 12,000 years. Which is probably true, but so what? So what if we repeat the same things? So what if we circle around the same ideas again and again, generation after generation? So what if every new generation feels the same urges and asks the same questions that humans have been feeling and asking for years? We're all related after all, so there is going to be some repetition of creative instinct. Everything reminds us of something. But once you put your own expression and passion behind an idea, that idea becomes yours. Anyhow, the older I get, the less impressed I become with originality. These days, I'm far more moved by authenticity. 
Attempts at originality can often feel forced and precious, but authenticity has quite resonance that never fails to stir. Just say what you want to say then, and say it with all your heart. Share what you are driven to share. If it's authentic enough, believe me, it will feel original. Mm. What did that passage give you permission to do or to be? That passage came into my life when I was paralyzed by this feeling, this assumption that as I was branching into this different type of writing, that whatever I wrote had to be completely new. Mm -hmm. You know, and so then I come up with an idea. I'm like, oh, this would be a great idea for a blog post, right? And then you sit down to write it and you look up sort of like what's been written on it. Somebody else already covered it. Or I would yeah. have a book idea and somebody else already wrote a book on that topic. Mm. And so it just became this never-ending chase of this originality unicorn mm -hmm. that just didn't exist. And that, that passage gave me permission to say, it doesn't matter that it's been covered before, right? So it doesn't matter... That someone, you know, before you wrote The Coaching Habit, Michael, that someone wrote another book on coaching. That's right. right. Or it, yeah. it didn't matter with when I wrote Think Like a Rocket Scientist that so many people had written uh, books on scientific thinking. Or it didn't matter yeah. when I wrote Awaken Your Genius that other people had written books on nonconformity and creativity or generating original ideas. That passage yeah. gave me the permission to say, regardless of any of that, as mm. long as I am writing what's true to me, as long as I'm bringing my own unique perception, unique ideas, my own purple to this context, whatever it might be, then it will feel original. You know, I often use the phrase, what I do is uh, old wine in new bottles. Mm. And I'm like, you know what? I'm working hard on the bottles. <laughs> the yeah. whole, I mean, you know, Socrates made a pretty good start on the whole power of questioning some time ago. Um, so I can't really claim any originality in that space, but the way I'm trying to serve it up to the world, I'm like, this is my best attempt at giving you old wisdom from where I stand and where I sit at the moment. Yeah, exactly. And I think the best works do that. They are, they marry the, the old with the new in some fashion. So people, when people read, it's not entirely new, which I think would be jarring. They're recognizing some old old ideas yeah. in there, but as you as you put it beautifully, it's old wine in a new bottle, and they're seeing yeah. the new bottle, and they're seeing the issue from a very different perspective, from a di you know different statement. Like for example, embrace your purple, right? That mm -hmm. when I share that idea, that often sticks with people. And exactly, yeah. but the, the 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 that's a new bottle on an old wine. The old <laughs> wine of like embracing your creativity, your what makes that's you different, right. it's been around for a very long time. But what I'm putting around it is a new bottle. How do you discover what authentic is? Because authentic is slippery. <laughs> you know, there's a sense that we're constantly learning and evolving and growing. And, you know, if you think of us as emergent beings at our best, you know, we, we, we keep getting more complex. Every time a new neural pathway forms in our brain, our complexity increases as we gain experiences and collect scars and collect stories. We, we merge into this next best version of who we are. And this, I, this tension between being authentic, which has a degree of 
this is the essential and keep it pure and emergent. I'm growing into something new. There's, there's a tension between that. And I'm just curious to know how you think about that tension, how you manage that and how you know when you're being authentic and when you're fake or being authentic. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, and that can be a difficult balance to strike. For me, authentic doesn't mean you don't change. Uh, mm. For me, authentic means staying true to who you are at the moment. Uh, so mm. today, writing was true to you. Ernest Hemingway had this advice for writer's block. It's like he, he would say something like, you know, if you get stuck, just write one true sentence. Mm -hmm. That's it. One true sentence. And I would modify that by saying, write one true sentence for today. So what feels yeah. true to you today, not two years ago, three years ago. And, um, and so when I was writing Awaken Your Genius, I actually struggled with this because my initial instinct was my last book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, was successful. And my initial instinct was to imitate, to look back at what made it successful and then mm -hmm. copy right? Yeah. Copy the same structure, the same formula, the same three parts and nine chapters, same everything. Yeah. And for the first time in my life, I got writer's block. Uh, <laughs> just words like stopped flowing, creativity uh -huh. stopped coming, and I couldn't write anything for a month or so. And so I had to just set aside all plans, all structures, all formulas from the past and look at myself, look at what I believe today, look at the type of book that I wanted to write today. What would be authentic to me today and started writing it. And the writing process was very, very different from the last one. The last one I had the title picked, the outline set, everything was already set. Right. This one, it was the exact opposite. It was this, instead of a top-down process, it was a bottom-up process where I mm. built the individual puzzle pieces first, not necessarily knowing what type of puzzle they would add up to, but started with the puzzle pieces, sort of leaning into what I was curious about and what was coming up on a day-to-day -day basis, yeah, yeah. and then just saw what they added up to over time. And once I, I let go of what resonated for me three years ago and what resonated with my audience three years ago and stepped into what I thought and felt today, mm. that's when the, the, the creativity flow opened up. Something interesting about, you know, you wrote... Think like a rocket scientist, like a rocket scientist. <laughs> mm -hmm. Here's the structure. Yeah. Here's the substructure. Here's the sub substructure. Now add the words into the sub substructure. And you wrote this book by the sound of things like uh, I'm 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 on my quest for purple here, more right. emergent, more exploratory, more creative. Your process was your the process. The medium was the me the message. Absolutely, yeah. That's a really beautiful reflection. I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah, that's that's absolutely right. <laughs> I, I I set aside the you know the rocket scientist who wrote the rocket yeah. scientist the, the the rocket science book and and yeah, stepped into the person I am today and and um, and wrote the book that I wrote. Whose whose approval are you looking for with this book? God, it, that's such a great question. Uh, and this is an ongoing struggle. Uh, <laughs> exactly. I'm asking for a friend of mine, a friend of mine called Michael. Yeah, yeah. right, exactly. <laughs> Initially, you know, during the writing process, uh, I think of one person when I write, and that's my wife, Kathy. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm writing for this audience of one. And the, the approval is also internal in many ways. It's, it's uh, I'm writing, I wrote the book that I wish I could have read 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, 
it really was self-help in that sense. I was like writing to help myself and inform a version of myself. And I would picture Kathy when I was, I was writing certain chapters just to have like a concrete audience member in mind. Yeah. Um, but now that the book has been finished and we're recording this on February 23rd, so about two months before the launch, now we've got, you know, publicists and marketers and all of the, you know, all of these other uh, people in the mix and, and the launch is coming up the approval needle shifts to external metrics. Yeah. It gets pushed over there. And whenever it gets pushed over there, all the delight and joy leaves the room. Like <laughs> it just totally all that. leaves the room, right? Yeah. Because now you're, you're, you've forgotten about the creative part and why you wrote, you wrote the book in the first mm. place. And you're focusing on these metrics and outcomes and pre-order numbers and, and everything else. Um, so it's this, and so the, this is why it's a constant struggle. It's a constant struggle to remind myself. And there's actually a chapter in this in the of this about this in the book where like <laughs> I pulled it up and reread it. Like I said, yeah. the book is self-help in many ways. <laughs> about external metrics. And yeah. the, the book mentions, for example, that Glenn Close was nominated for the Academy Award eight times and mm. she never won. Uh, Jason Alexander, famous for playing Costanza on Seinfeld, he was nominated for an Emmy eight times. And he never won. Uh, Isaac Asimov, he wrote 261 consecutive non-bestsellers. So he didn't hit the New York Times bestseller list. And this is not a mistake. He didn't hit the New York Times bestseller list until his 262nd book. Oh my God. And by the way, he, he wrote that many books, setting that Goodness. aside. Goodness, but, yeah. but does that mean that like Glenn Close and Jason Alexander are bad actors or yeah. that Asimov's first 261 books all sucked? Of course not. Um, I think, you know, they can't control how Academy members vote. Asimov can contr cannot control how many, how many copies of his books sell. And the more we focus on external metrics and external approval, yeah. the more we strive for guaranteed success in a way yeah. that I was trying to do with the writing of this book initially. And the more we strive for guaranteed success is the less original we become because we fear failure. And we, so we try to do the thing that we think is going to land safely and it's going to work. Mm. And that I think robs us of authenticity in, in, in many ways. Um, so external approval is like, and I try to remind myself again, being where I am right now <laughs> is like relying on fossil fuels to mm -hmm. generate our energy like that the stuff is not renewable it doesn't burn clean you constantly need more doses of it like yeah. when, when it's done you need more when it's done you need more internal approval approval from within is like renewable energy sources right that stuff burns clean and you have yeah. an infinite supply of it from within and it, as long as you've got that to tap into you don't need the the more polluting uh yeah. the more scarce external approval so i get that in theory yeah. and in practice how are you measuring success for this book you're two months out for people who've never launched a book before two months out is like one of the it's the darkest time because you're doing a bazillion things you're you're asking favors of people you're knocking on doors and it's all it's all um, you, you're not sure how any of it's going because at the moment there's no, there's no feedback. There's no bounce back. There's no sense of where you are in the process. You're just putting stuff out into the world. So in my experience, it can be quite depleting. And, um, 
when you're being depleted like that, you're more vulnerable to the what you know. <laughs> will it hit a? Will it hit a number? Will it hit a list? Will it hit a degree of approval from somebody? So, how are you? How do you talk about success for this new book, Ozan? Yeah, great question. Um, two ideas came to mind in terms of what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis, because you're right, this can be a really dark period of time when you're just constantly putting yourself out there and mm-hmm. not getting, you know, the constant pat on the back of like, good job. You, you did great. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm doing two things. One, I actually find myself going back to the book and rereading parts of it for myself as reminders yeah. to myself of why I wrote it uh, and reconnecting with the joy of writing it too. Mm. So that's, that's a that's really nice. important part for me. I writers often complain about the writing process process. I enjoyed, I would say 90% of writing this book. That's a high batting average. Yeah. (laughs) And so reconnecting with the delight that I was giving Mm. myself as I wrote the book um, and realizing that like, as long as I had fun along the way, as long as I delighted myself, as long as I learned things in the process, the outcome by reference to external metrics loses some of its relevance because now you're just focused on the process and you're reminding yourself that you you enjoy the journey. Mm. And then the second bit, and I know this is more external facing, but it's been an important reminder for me. So I gave talks based on the book uh, already two, three of them, three of them. Um, and it landed so well with the audience. I got standing ovations. Uh, and nice. so many people came up to me after the talk just to tell me like how the concepts in the in the talk resonated and, and really helped them um, come to certain realizations in their lives. So whenever I lose sight, I just go back to the to the way that I felt on stage, delivering mm. the material to that audience and how I was coming alive and then the process the audience was coming alive. So in moments yeah. of confusion, I close my eyes and I'm like, <laughs> I'm back on that stage and I can see the faces yeah. of the audience and, and remember how I felt and remember how most of them felt. You know, um, I've been wrestling this with this with my small team because um, a few months after your book, my new book will come out. And... One of the things that's helping me at the moment, I'm saying this for you, but I'm saying this for people listening as well, is we've set a mission for the book launch, which isn't about book sales. It's to improve 10 million working relationships. Mm. And having that external mission gives a, uh, an external purpose. And it's also like, I, it's like impossible to actually measure. I'm like, I don't know how to get to 10 million working relationships. I, it feels not utterly important. Maybe it's a bit like trying to land a, a rover on Mars. It's like, I, I think we might be able to do this. I'm not, but it's going to take a whole lot of figuring out and a whole lot of people working hard for some years to get there. Um, and just having 10 million working relationships as the language we talk about in terms of what we're trying to achieve with the book feels like it relieves pressure around the minutiae and the, and the selfishness of a book launch, which is like, I want this book to do well because I want to do well. I want to be famous. I want to be a blah, blah, times bestseller. I want all of that. And I'm like trying to, and, you know, not always successfully, but trying to sit with that a little bit and see how it goes. I love that. And I, and I love that you picked something that's not, because everything is so focused on book sales right, in the lead mm. up to the launch, a metric. That's really meaningful. That has a really important purpose embedded into it. Yeah. And that goes beyond, you know, bestseller lists and and, and sales numbers. I think that's really beautiful. Uh, one more thing I wanted to mention on point here 
is that you know we often assume that something has to be a make a big splash to make a difference in the world like you need mm. a big bestseller or you need to like write a book about something yeah um that's going to reach millions of people but it's often those like small actions um that create ripple effects yeah that extend outward and often we don't notice them so we assume they don't exist right we mm. assume that like you know that that ripple effect doesn't exist because you can't see it. Whereas you can see yeah. the front page of the New York Times, or you can see the sales numbers, and you think those are what matters. But those little mm. things where like you you change one working relationship with your <laughs> next book, Michael, yeah. and then that has this ripple effect of like exactly. by changing that working relationship, that will have an effect on on yeah. other working relationships in that environment, and then it will ripple out from there. To distances and relationships that you can't even fathom or see because those people may not be buying your book, but someone read it, someone was influenced by it, someone changed their relationship, and yeah. as a result, they affected so many lives in the process. You know, and when you talked about your journey, rocket scientist, or you know, moving from Turkey, but rocket scientist, and then I'm like, maybe done with that, <laughs> and then law school, and uh, being a lawyer, and then I'm quite sure I'm done with that. And then being a law professor and like, hey, I think I'm done with that. Um, you know, what our joint friend Whitney Johnson would call is like this movement through S-curves. You know, right. there's rush at the bottom, you climb up towards mastery, you hit that next, that top level, you start to plateau. Um, how do you stay alive to the work you're doing now? How do you stop that becoming the next thing you get bored of? Sure. On a day-to-day -day basis, that means leaning into what's driving my curiosity, what's interesting mm. to me. What am I curious about? What do I want to explore right now? And if you look at the, the professions that I left, I had come in each instance to the end of my exploration, to right. the end of my curiosity. And so just to give the, the most recent example of leaving academia and, and my job as a law professor, and I did think when I first started that I'd be a law professor for life. But I, I, I remember each time I stepped in front of the podium uh, to give a lecture, I would come alive. Like when mm. I first started teaching, it was this moment of like just being alive and being so excited to deliver the material. <laughs> and then I remember, I don't remember when this was, but I, I, I did the same walk in front, of the, in front of the podium. I stood there and I noticed this sinking feeling. Uh. This feeling of constriction, this feeling yeah. of like, I can't believe I'm about to teach the same material now for the 25th time. Um, and that feeling was a signal to me that I might be coming to the end of that particular journey, that yeah. I had maybe reached the, 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 the level, the, the plateau of there is nothing else for me to learn here. There is really, I mean, there might be some marginal learnings here and there, but I've been teaching the same classes for years and years and years and answering the same types of student questions and, and attending the same types of committee meetings. And so I had come to the sort of the natural end of that, of that journey. And, um, and if I hadn't stepped into the next thing of what was making me curious and interested, I think I would have lost myself. And I also would have ended up being a terrible professor. Because, yeah. you know, a lot of, and I love, you see this with a lot of academics is like, they do the same thing for all of their life. And then at the end, towards the end, once they've reached that plateau point, they started to decline 
And yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to leave on good terms. I wanted to leave when I was still good at yeah. what I did and then uh, step into the next thing that I was curious about. You talked about noticing that sinking feeling and I'm a heady person. I like ideas. You're a rocket scientist. So by definition, et cetera, et cetera. And there's always so much wisdom in your body in that somatic form. How have you learned to listen to what is going on beyond just the ideas in your brain? I remember the day. <laughs> <laughs> I, was in, I was in Dublin to give a keynote uh, and I had like some time off and there was this farm nearby the hotel where I was staying where they had skeet shooting. So they mm -hmm. would shoot these like clay targets and and you try to shoot them. And I was like, oh, I don't have anything else to do. And I've never done this before. So let me just let me just go try it out and see how it goes. And so the, I went to this place and the, the target would shoot up and I would operate from here. I'm like calculating velocity, pitch, and distance and <laughs> trying to figure out when to pull the trigger. And I just kept missing. Like I would just keep missing and missing and missing and missing one after the other. The instructor took pity on me. He came over and he looked at me and he said, you're overthinking it. And, right. and I was like, I have no other mode of thinking available. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what, there's nothing left. After yeah, I there's nothing left. It's just overthinking or not thinking at all. <laughs> and then he said, he said, and this is advice that I still, uh, still remember to this day. He said, follow your body. Your mind is getting in the way. Uh, mm. He said, pull the trigger when you feel like it's the right moment, not when you think it is. So I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot. And the clay target launched again. And this time I just totally shut out my overcalculating brain. I leaned in, into my body and I, I, uh, I pulled the trigger when I felt like it was the right time. And I nailed the thing that's that centered. <laughs> and it was like, okay, such validation from the universe that like, yeah, maybe, maybe this is important to do. And then yeah. that sent me on this reflection, this self-reflective journey of, I remember all the times in my life when I overthought and overcalculated and ignored the signals from my body. Like mm. my body in my gut, and this is like the language we normally use, right? I knew in my gut that mm. I shouldn't do business with this person, but they looked great on paper. And if you yeah. do pros and cons lists, you should absolutely do it. And it ended up being a terrible deal. Or I knew in my heart that I shouldn't hire this person, but I hired them anyway because they look great on paper. It ended up being a speaking or working relationships. It ended up being a terrible working relationship. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, the, and the, the, the goal isn't to ignore the mind. It's to align the mind with the body. And for yeah. most of us, I think that also means just learning to listen to the signals that the body is sending you on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. Mm. Uh, that And that feeling changes for everybody. Like, well, I... The example that I gave that you alluded to was that feeling of sinking and suffocation that I felt. Um, and then the feeling of expansion and aliveness and listening yeah. to those signals and, and following them becomes really, really important because as you said, the body is from an evolutionary perspective, ancient. Your mind is a really powerful machine, but it arrived on the scene in the grand scheme of things yesterday. Yeah, The body carries millions of years of ancient wisdom and we often ignore that wisdom because we're too stuck uh, with our minds. Ozan's clay pigeon story reminds me of playing soccer last weekend. Now, 
I get together most Sunday mornings in the winter with a bunch of other old-ish dudes like me. We get assigned teams and we do our best basically not to get injured for a couple of hours. Now, truth is I've been on a good roll lately. I mean, not only have I not got injured, but I've been playing as well as I can. I've been running hard. I've even been scoring some goals, which is nothing short of miraculous. But last Sunday, I was playing terribly. <laughs> I was never in the right place. And when I was and got the ball, I'd make a bad pass or once or twice I even tried to kick it and missed it completely, which is embarrassing and actually never really happens. I could feel myself tensing up and actually just getting snippy with myself, you know, just kind of berating myself. My mind, like Ozan's when in Ireland, was getting in my own way. Now, I'm not sure exactly how Ozan just shut out his over-calculating mind. That's the language he used. But for me, I found the way to do that was with a mantra. And my mantra was calm, calm, calm. I just kept saying that word to myself. I was trying to de-escalate my body and from that to de-escalate my mind. Now, in truth, I didn't actually get much better. I was still pretty much off my game. It's just one of those days. But I did get much better in enjoying the moment, enjoying being there. I was there to have fun with my friends. I didn't really need to hit the target. I just had to be present in my body, calm. If you like my conversation with Ozan, a couple of other uh, interviews you can dig back into our archives and see if you can find. I know we don't number our interviews. A friend of mine, Susan, has said number them. It's a little complicated. Um, we may try and figure that out, but it's not not going to happen in the next little while. So you have to go and hunt for these. Jay Akunzo, making what matters most. Jay is a podcaster and a writer, but some very thoughtful stuff about what it means to create. And Madeline Dore, I, I love this interview with Madeline, How to Be Alive. She is she writes one of the best newsletters I know. Um, she's a great curator and a great searcher for a life that matters. If you want more information about Ozan's new book, I'd suggest you go to geniusbook.net. There's bonus content in and around the book launch. So if you're fast enough, you may be able to pick up some of those bonuses. Um, but certainly, if not, go to Ozan Barrel. Um, He's not very active on social. He has a great newsletter though, and I encourage you to subscribe to his newsletter. Join me because I read that every week. Thank you for listening. Thanks for supporting the podcast, for reviewing it if you've reviewed it, for passing an interview on if you found one and you want to share it with somebody. That's really appreciated. You're awesome and you're doing great. <laughs>